this band crushes. <laughs> I mean, just crushes. <laughs> just such a blessing to be led by you guys every week. Very, very thankful for you all. Thanks a ton, Pax and team. Uh, how's everybody doing this morning? Good. Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Ezra. Ezra. It's on page 454, in mine at least. Um, look, hey, uh, th- this is uh, a, new, a new series we're starting today. Really, really excited. I've uh, kind of titled it Return, Rebuild, Renew. You're going to see these themes emerge as we look into the books of both Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Here's the thing at Double Oak, we've for quite some time uh, at our Mount Laurel campus and even here, if you'll remember in the past couple of years, our Chelsea campus, we've sought uh, to use the summertime as a really good opportunity uh, to explore the Old Testament. Now, how many of you are extremely versed uh, in the post-Babylon exile period of the Old Testament? All right, not a ton of us, right? Uh, But this is really, really good for us to understand the depth of what God is doing in his story. We've all got stories, and I think when we think of our story, we think of these kind of major parts that, that kind of come to the surface that emerge in the relationships that we have with people, these giant significant events. When you and I think, to some degree, look at the scriptures, we don't think of these books as pictures of that, and yet God is doing something absolutely Incredible, And you've heard this phrase for the past couple of weeks. You heard it from Hunter last week as he shared and walked through not only the Joshua 6 passage, but in connection with John 16. Uh, and, and then you've heard Paxton say it this morning, but we are people that truly believe, uh, and we use this phrase, that, that Jesus Christ is on every page. Now, when you look into the book of, of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, uh, as we walk through this, these books over the next few weeks you're going to just cognitively recognize that you don't literally see Jesus' name on each of these pages. But the reality is is that this scripture, like all others, points directly to the Messiah, directly to Jesus Christ, directly to the coming Savior who will redeem God's people. Um, We're going to see that today. Ezra uh, and Nehemiah, a couple of things really quick just uh, to come out of the gate. Uh, and look, I, I want to be very candid and transparent with you. This is going to be very historical today. It's just gonna, it's just, there's just going to be a lot of history. Um, it is very dreary outside. I know you because I know me. Uh, and I don't think I have the most pleasing voice in the world either. So uh, don't fall asleep. All right, hang in. There's some incredible stuff that that the Holy Spirit will allow us to see if we'll be attentive uh, to the text today. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, the background, one unified work. So these are separated in our our copy of the Bible, but these two stories, uh, these two accounts are directly related. You're going to see a lot of overlap, particularly as Ezra bleeds into Nehemiah, and you're going to recognize that this all fits together very cohesively. It wasn't until the late Christian era that these were actually even separated, and until 500 years ago that the Jewish text never had them separated. Um, Here's what is the core of, of, of what we're going to find. These books describe the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem after 70 years of exile in Babylon. 70 years of exile in Babylon. So God's chosen people, God's chosen people have have been handed over. God has allowed them to be taken captive by, by the Babylonian kingdom. 
And for 70 years, they're in exile, away from the, the promised land. They're away from Jerusalem. And yet God is still faithful. What we're going to see in Ezra and Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the temple that was destroyed. That's particularly in Ezra 1 through 6. Covenant community. The covenant community that God is seeking to restore with his people in Ezra 7 7 through 10. And then uh, the early portions of Nehemiah, you're going to see the the city's walls being rebuilt. Jerusalem being restored. Here's what happens. We're going to read these first four verses of, of Ezra 1 today. But this is really the crux. I want you to really, really listen to this. The return from exile, and this happens from a decree of Cyrus, this is part of God's providence. This is part of of his plan in guiding history to its ultimate purpose. So in this book, you're going to see people return to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. God's going to renew covenant relationship with them. Um, So let's do this. I want us to read uh, Ezra chapter 1. We're going to read verse uh, verse 1 all the way through verse 4. It's going to be the focus of where we are today. This is Ezra 1, 1 through 4. It says this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And here it is. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple of things emerge here. You, you see this decree. You see this, this happening, this stirring, as the text describes it, in the heart of this pagan king. This one who, who you, you notice now the word Persia in the first verse to describe Cyrus. And you say, well, okay, well, what's the connection? Well, Persia, Cyrus has conquered Babylon. And so now the, the, these people, he is freeing, he is allowing by, because God has stirred in him. Now, I want you to think about this. This is, not, this is not one of God's chosen people. And yet God stirs in him the desire to send Israel back to Jerusalem, to Judah. This is the length to which our God will go for us. That he would stir the heart of one who is not his to bring his people to himself. Um, want us to note a couple of things. In your Bible, if you're reading the ESV with, with us, if you read on the screen, uh, you may have a different translation, but it, it, most of your texts are typically going to say, in the first year, when you look at verse 1. Look down at verse 1 and say, in the first year. There, there's a little piece... Of, of Hebrew nuance that's kind of missing right here, and I want to tell you about it. Um, the, the way this is written is, is not so much just in the first year. There's actually this continual kind of motif that's happening where if, if we were to really look at this in the Hebrew, it's really going to say something like, and in the first year. And in the first year. 
Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I, I, always, I would get in trouble in English class for starting a sentence with and, right? And we don't typically do that after a period. There's a couple of deep, significant things that are happening because of the way this text reads. When it says and in the first year, one, there is a deep picture of the connectedness of Scripture, that's what's happening as, as Ezra unfolds. There's this picture of connectedness that this is a part of a greater story. So you and I, I think when we, we carry around this Bible that is, this, that is this, uh, this anthology, this collection of collections and its histories and its, and its minor and major prophets and its, and its poetry and its wisdom and its gospels and its letters and its prophecy, it's all of these things... And we see them separated. And yet, in reality, the scriptures are one true, cohesive meta narrative, this one giant, large story that reveals to us God's redemptive purpose for us. Across 66 books, we get the opportunity to see and sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. That's what the text does. So when, when we read the start of Ezra, it says, and in the first year, that's really, really important. That's a signifier uh, that this is one story, this is one unified text in which one true God gives us creation, redemption, restoration through Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, here's the second thing. This and is very specific. It's not just in that overarching story. This means that there's a connectedness not just to all the text, but the previous stories, the previous accounts that came before it. It shows that that there's a connectedness to a a very specific event. And it tells us what that is in verse 1. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Here's what's happening. This, this return from exile from these Israelites, they're coming back uh, to Jerusalem uh, to be charged to, to rebuild the temple, to, to experience covenant renewal with God, even though they've broken Torah law, they, they've broken the Ten Commandments, they've broken all of these things. God draws them back, and it's after this period of exile of 70 years. So, so when you jump into Ezra, if you don't understand what has led up to this moment, we'll miss, you'll miss everything. So will I. We'll, we'll miss the whole thing. So this is going to sound strange, perhaps, but in order to get us to the place where we can walk through these books, we've got to talk about Jeremiah. What is this, this word that's God's word that comes by Jeremiah's mouth that has to be fulfilled? What Cyrus is doing is fulfilling it. What is that fulfilling? Uh, we're going to start and we're going to take a deep look into Jeremiah today. We're going to look at some, some texts that give us a really big overview of that book. See, I'm, I can see you fading already. Some of you are like, look, you said we're going to do Ezra. And now you're already telling us we're going to do another book. Look, hang in. Because uh, th- there's some incredible stuff here from Jeremiah that's going to set this up. And I think a number of these things in Jeremiah you've probably heard and you probably know. Look, who's Jeremiah? He's an Israelite priest, prophet. He's in Jerusalem. God calls him to proclaim the reality that his people have broken covenant with him. That they have lived unfaithfully. That there are, there are not just laws and things that they've, they've broken. There's actually deep injustice, social injustice. The poor, the marginalized, ladies, all kinds of people that, that are supposed to be cared for and nurtured through the covenant of God are being abused. 
They're being not taken care of. And then in addition to that, and actually this is probably an outflow from this, this people, this covenant people has, has done this thing where they're, they're uh, you know, it's a day off from us. But like, so Sunday through Friday, they're living like the world, and then they're coming to the temple on Saturday, okay? They're living in such a way that not only have they not honored God with their true heart and worship, but they have become uh, syncretists. And that just means they've melded all of these things in the culture and the society around them with what they're doing spiritually. So it's, it's, not, it's not God, it's not Yahweh now, it's all of these other things in addition to, to Canaanite gods that would even offer child sacrifice. The, the, these, these people, the things that they're doing and the way that they worship are not reflective of the people of God. That's not what they look like. So, so Jeremiah has come to warn them. God has raised him up to warn them about his coming judgment. They've broken the covenant, and, and he describes their unfaithfulness in this way. He's really one of the first to, to help emerge and give us the idea of idolatry as unfaithfulness. That's the picture that Jeremiah paints of these people. This injustice, uh, not taking care of the vulnerable, not regarding Torah law. Um, Jeremiah tells God's people very specifically, very plainly, that they will be overtaken. That he will allow, that God will allow his temple to be destroyed by an enemy from the north. You'll see that as you read through the book of Jeremiah, this allusion to, or or, or really more direct than that, this pointing to this enemy from the north, that's Babylon. That's who he is writing about, the ones who will take them captive. And, And the prophecies that he gives lead up to this incredibly important section in chapter 25 that help us understand where we are in Ezra. That help us get to, to this, this freedom from exile place. Well, how did we get there? Babylon is coming to conquer Israel, and Israel is going to be exiled for 70 years. I want us to look at this. This is Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 1 through 14. Jeremiah 25, 1 through 14. It'll be on the screen if you don't want to turn there. Um, Here's what it says. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So this is the fourth year of, of, of the, 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 uh, Israel's king, and yet the first of the king of Babylon. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem for 23 years. From the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have listened, or you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil ways and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. So just stop right here for just one moment. He's saying he's preached to them for 23 years. Prophesied, told them for 23 years to return to the Lord. He even reminds them of the land that they inhabit, that the God has given them and has been given to them from their fathers of old. All right, let's continue in verse 6. It says, Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north. 
declares the Lord. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these an everlasting desolation. Or sorry, uh, in its habits against all these nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and millstones, or sorry, mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. And here it is, 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed... I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I've uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves, even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How can God do this to his people? How can he do this to his people? These are God's people. The, the one that, that through fathers of old has given them covenant promise after promise, given them this land, given them this, this place. This is the milk and honey place that is talked about. He's given them himself in the covenant. And yet now, does this seem harsh? It does. It feels, it feels harsh. In certain ways, I think in a, in a very human way, we look at this and we say, this is harsh, but, it, but here's the reality. Let's look at it from God's perspective. Who he is and who he's created these people to be, two things. One, they're an idolatry. They are living in direct opposition to the God that loves them. They're not just merely failing to worship the God of the covenant who loves them. They're actively worshiping other gods. They're actively worshiping other gods. He's jealous. There's no God but him. And yet they still worship others. Here's the second thing. He's been patient. God has been long-suffering. You ever waited on somebody to get it right for 23 years? Wives, don't answer that. All right? 23 years of continual burdening conviction compelling argument, chastening love, and yet still nothing. Israel will not return to who God has called them to be. So God uses Jeremiah, and he tells them over and over and over again. Um, People refer to Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. You ever heard that? Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, telling someone to do over and over and over again what they fail to do. I think you can recognize this, a number of you, because you are probably weeping parents. You're weeping parents. Because it's, there, there's a lot of similarity here. You tell your child over and over and over repeatedly not to do this thing, and it's as if they just don't listen. They just don't get it. Um, anybody ever seen Finding Nemo? All right. This is the deal, right? You got, you got Marlin, this unfunny clownfish. He's just not funny at all, and he's got his son, Nemo, who just wants to be like every other kid. He wants to go to school. He wants to to get out and live and swim, and he's got this lucky fin, right? So he kind of can't do it, uh, the things that a lot of other fish can do. And so Marlon's worried about him, and he won't let him out there. And, And yet Nemo just continually pushes boundaries over and over and over again. And now Marlon is projected as being too cautious in the movie to some degree, right? But look, he's just trying to protect his child. 
And he gets, look, this guy gets a bad rap, I think, personally. I mean, I think I, 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 think I would probably be like, well, look, I, I told him not to swim out there. I told him not to touch the boat. I told him not to get trapped by the diver and start this giant, you know, Pixar extravaganza where I'm trying to get my child back. This is who we are. This is what God's people have done. They've continually pushed boundaries, failed to listen, move and move and move away from from hearing God's call. Think about two decades of warnings. Two decades of warnings. There can be no argument that God has not tried to continually save his people. He's appealed to them through just this prophet for 23 years. So this exile, this judgment comes, but it's not all at once, and it happens over time, which even shows God's patience even more. Israel's given more time to repent. And so here's some historical stuff. Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem around 597 B.C. and deports the majority of the people, uh, the best people in Judah. So you've got uh, artisans, leaders, craftsmen, royalty. These kind of folks are being deported. And these are the people that Jeremiah is going to address in this famous chapter that I think you're familiar with. is chapter 29. Um, these people, here's the thing, they're expecting this period of judgment from about, for about two years. So they've heard it's going to be 70, but instead they believe it's going to be two because there are all these, uh, we'll, we'll see it in the text, but all these people that are falsely prophesying that it's only going to be two years. Uh, Jerusalem still stands currently, and the people of God refuse to listen to him. And then so Jeremiah gives them this word. This is Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14, and it says this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King uh, Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Ju- uh, Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It's tough. Not, not a lot of Matthews and Marks in there, right? Um, it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So even in this place, God longs for them to multiply. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners or diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not uh, not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I want us to note two very specific things. There's a lot here, but two very specific things. Look back up into verse 4. Uh, 29 4 this is what it says 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Make no mistake, the Lord has sent them into exile. This is not just some byproduct of the political world. God has, has sent them in his infinite wisdom, in his providence, he sends them into exile. This isn't happening for a random reason. This is God's plan to chasten, to rebuke his people in love. Look at verses 8 through 10. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. So th- there are these prophets, there are these people that are telling this remnant, these people, that, that, that it's only going to be two years, that it's going to be a short time. It's not true. The Lord is telling them it's going to be 70 years, and this is his work of judgment for their good. God sends them. He does this with a purpose. Here's the second thing. God has a plan for his people. This is verse 11. You know this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope or to give you a future and a hope for, I grew up, uh, this plan to, to prosper you, not to harm you, hope in a future, NIV version. Um, but look, God is saying to these people, it may feel like I've given up on you and yet I've not. I have not abandon you. But when, when we read this verse, and I think it's really important to address this in the, in the life of, of not just our body of faith, but, but the church. This is a verse. Anybody ever heard this verse applied in a billion different ways in, in the world around them? All right. Anybody guilty of doing that themselves? Me too. All right. So I'm the only one that's heard it and I'm the only one that's done it evilly. Uh, right, some of us. Look, plans to give you a hope in a future. You see this. I know you see this because you have Facebook. All right, you see this, and this is, and, and there are, and there are people that will post this in relation to, you know, a, a new job or to, or to a romantic uh, relationship that is blossoming or blooming or, or a, a child or all of these things, and those, those things are indicative of God's, God's promise and His plan for, for you in, in personal ways. But I, I want us to really understand the context of what is happening here because this is up there this verse is up there with philippians 4 13 this is the i can do all things through christ who gives me strength here's where we see this you see it on football players eye black right philippians 4 13 um and here's the thing and i'm and i mean this genuinely i mean this to be funny so now i've set it up so it's gonna be a super big bummer if you don't laugh um but but being able to do all things through christ who gives gives one strength that doesn't happen if you can't block up front it doesn't happen if you can't tackle and it doesn't happen if you got no speed on the edge because uh i'm an auburn fan all right i know i see it every year every single year it feels like look this is the reality that verse is not used, contextually used, to say, well, I can just go do this thing. In the same way, when Jeremiah writes this, he didn't write this to be a bumper sticker. There's a real context for this. This, this really, really matters for us as believers to understand the truth of God's word. That we don't just pull 29.11 out and say, you know what, I, I've got, I, there's some good stuff happened today. And so this must be God's plans to, to prosper me and not to harm me for my welfare, to give me hope in a future. 
Those things could be a part of that, but the reality is we're going to do some unhealthy things when we just take a scripture and seek to apply it in some personal area of life. Instead, there is a real context, and it indicates that it's not meant as this blanket promise of worldly blessing. That's not what it's about. It's a picture of God's covenant faithfulness to unfaithful people, that after 70 years that he would bring them back, that the Lord has not given up on his people. God calls this people to faithfulness and obedience even in their suffering. There's an element of obedience to the promise. They're supposed to wait on the Lord and trust him even as they're away from the temple. He tells them to, to, to bear fruit, to multiply, to do these things even in a Babylonian context. They were supposed to be patient and wait on him. But for the people of Israel, this is hard to see. Look what happens in Jeremiah 52. This is Jeremiah 52, 12 through 14. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord, this is the temple, and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down and all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the guard or with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, here's the important thing to note. Jeremiah is not told chronologically. It's not told chronologically. Um, We know this because if you look into Jeremiah 36, you're going to see that the Lord tells Jeremiah to gather all of his writings, to get together all of his his sermons, all of his speeches, poetry, and and, and all of these things, these writings. uh, And and, and one, a scribe by the name of Baruch, will put all this together. And he also includes in this stories uh, of people describing and talking about their experience with Jeremiah. So it reads like this giant collection of writings. That's what it is. Um, That's a little bit of an aside, but that's why we're jumping around throughout Jeremiah. But here's what happens. Temple burned. Large buildings burned. The things that made Jerusalem, Jerusalem have been burned. God does what he says. God said he would allow Babylon from the north to come and do this, and he has done it. The people living through this and watching this happen, could you imagine? I mean, this is, this is, like, watching, this is like watching 9-11 if the two towers are, are, are the or the church, the, the, the most emblematic thing of your faith, just watching it all go up in flames, it had to feel like this is the end. That it is over, but this is not the end of the story. This is not the end of the story. In the midst of all this pain, that promise that, that's talked about in chapter 29, particularly in verse 11, that everything building up to and around that, there's promise. This is Jeremiah 31. 31 through 34, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with them with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's the reality. Here's the faithfulness. 
even in this Jeremiah 31 passage, you see the reference of, of taking God taking Israel by the hand, leading them out of Egypt. We refer to this as the Exodus. And in the midst of this, God gives, God gives his people these deep covenant promises. Look into Exodus 20. Look, look to the Ten Commandments. Look to what God gives. And yet now God is saying it will, not, it will not be just on tablets, but it will be in your heart. That I will write these words on your heart. In many ways, what we see here, and this is the way the scriptures fit together. See this and hear this. This is a new Exodus. This is, again, a movement of people out of pain, out of exile, out of captivity, in the same way they were in Egypt. Now God brings these people back to Jerusalem to rebuild, to restore, to renew the covenant that he has made with them. And yet he describes this covenant as being one that is new. Here's the main takeaway. God remains faithful. God remains faithful even when his people are faithless. I know this because I've been that. To be candid, most days I still am in a number of ways. And yet God is continually faithful. This is 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God is committed to his covenant, both old and new, because the new covenant has fulfilled the old one in Jesus Christ. This new covenant that Jeremiah is talking about, this new covenant, this is Christ on every page. This is a pointing to the Jesus who would come to redeem us. 597 B.C. feels like a long time ago, and it's pointing in the same direction that we are. Our hearts focused, the text is focused toward the life of Jesus. What God has promised will come to fruition. How is that possible? It not only comes, but it comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What is that fulfillment? It's this people that have God's word not merely on a tablet or, or on a scroll or, or in, in pages, or, or even for some of you today, a screen. It's, it's not just that. It's in your heart. The very word of God dwells in your heart. How is that possible? Because you and I have the Spirit. We've just walked out of this series of living in the Spirit. And this is the truth that we know. We have the very Spirit of Jesus Christ. The very Spirit of the Word of God. The Logos. The logic of God. The very Word of God that dwells in us by His Spirit. How do we know this? This is Romans 5.5. 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. In our faithlessness, God is still faithful. We're going to have an opportunity for communion this morning. Um, and so I want to go ahead and encourage our, our elders and deacons to come forward uh, and, and pick a table. And then um, I want to encourage our, our, our band, our worship team, to come forward as well. Uh, and they're going, to, they're going to take communion first, and then we're going to have them uh, come and begin to lead. Um, I want to tell you about this other piece of Jeremiah 25 that really sets up um, what's happening 
this, this exile uh, and everything that, that's happening here. Um, Jeremiah 25, 15. God describes Babylon as a cup of wine. As a cup of wine that is being poured out on all Israel and the nations. And look, again, it's, it's, it's wrapped in plastic. All right? So bear with us. But what you're going to have before you is this cup. And it is a picture of this cup of wrath that Jeremiah describes. But instead of being poured out like we deserve, it's poured out on Christ. It's a picture of his blood shed for us. This new covenant in Jesus himself. This cup reminds us that he who had no sin became sin for us. So that we could become the righteousness of God. How do I get to this place where, where I'm not faithless anymore and I'm faithful? Well, you trust in Jesus Christ. You surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You allow yourself to be indwelled by the Spirit as you give yourself to Jesus Christ through repentance of sin and trust that, that God has created you in his image for a relationship with you and that even though you have broken it, he has come near. Those who were far off have been made to draw, be drawn near, as Paul would say in Ephesians, through what Christ has done for us. Christ takes that cup of wrath and gives us righteousness. He takes the pain, and we get the promise. So when we sing, great is thy faithfulness, when we sing, great is your love to me, when we sing that God's, God is a good father and that it's who he is, when we sing that God has done great things, this is it. And what you're going to find before you is a very small wafer. It's a very, it's a very small piece of bread. And you're going to find this cup that, although meager in size, is very sweet and delicious, therefore. Um, but you're going to take these two elements, and you're going to get the chance to taste and see of that goodness. On this side of the cross, you and I have, have, were not exiled physically. But we were exiled in our sin and our brokenness and our rejection of the Lord, and yet we have been drawn out because the newest and final exodus uh, before the final, final exodus that comes is this new exodus into this new covenant with Jesus Christ, what he has done for us. Um, so I just want to encourage you to, to take a moment to recognize that as we walk through Ezra and Nehemiah, um, here's what I think happens to us a lot. Here's what I'm guilty of a lot. I will come to God's word and I will, I will mine it for this thing, this thing that I'm supposed to do. How, and some of that's not bad, but, but the desire to grow, to, to be changed, to be transformed by the spirit, not bad at all. But the reality is, is that I, so often I find myself being like, how does God's story fit into my story? Here's the thing. This what we do here weekly is not about trying to figure out how God's story fits into ours. It's about coming to terms with the fact that we merely fit into his. That you and I are people of this text. 
that the brokenness, the pain, the enmity, uh, all the things that, 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 that drive us away from the Lord, that make us break covenant and reject him, that he's drawn us back to himself through Christ. And we see it on every page. At every turn, there's hope. There's plans for, for welfare, for promise, for prosperity, for redemption. Not for cars or homes or a bank account, but for a new covenant made in Jesus Christ. Can we celebrate that this morning and recognize God's goodness? People that we're connected to, God has redeemed. Would you pray with me? God, Jeremiah describes this cup of wrath, this wrath, um, God, that is greatly deserved by all who have rejected you. And Father, we are in that story. We are those who have rejected you, who loved ourselves rather than you. We have enjoyed gifts rather than giver. Uh, we have delighted, um, God, in ourselves. And we chose brokenness over fullness. And yet, Father, through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, you have made us alive. You have made us new. God, would we recognize today, would you draw our hearts to taste and see as we take these elements that in spite of all that faithlessness, Father, the faithlessness of years ago and the faithlessness of perhaps even this morning, God, you are still faithful. You're still faithful. God, you love us. Help us to taste and see and embrace that you're good this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, in a moment, you're going to have an opportunity to come. Just very briefly, I want to say, uh, here's the reality. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, if you follow Jesus, if you love him, then this meal is for you. Uh, if, you have, if you have yet to come to that place, I pray that, that God would be drawing you there even now. But that if that's not who you are, then, then my, 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 I guess, ultimately, my, my compelling ask would be, don't come. Don't come and take, take this meal. Um, because it won't mean anything to you. This is not a ritual. This is, this is an experience in which we remember God who loves us and experience him even in this moment. Um, so I pray that if that's you and, and you have questions, you want to know why I would say these things, why can't I take the meal too? Or, or you want to take this meal because you want to know the God who, who loves you this much to bring you back? Um, I hope you'll come find myself or Brian or Joe or Paxson or a number of us um, after the service. Uh, but let, let's do this. Let's, let's worship and enjoy this meal together. Uh, let's taste God's gifts uh, and see that he's good. So I invite you to come now.